Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, the library of sessions recorded at the Rabbit Room's annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today, we're excited to share a session led by Walter Wangren Jr. and Sarah Danger called Story and the Child's Imagination from 2021's Hutchmoot Homebound. In his final interview, Walter Wangren Jr. and Sarah Danger discuss the challenges and nuances of writing stories for children, looking especially at the importance of heavy themes such as grief and death. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Sarah Danger. I'm Associate Professor of English at Valparaiso University, and I'm a friend of Walter Wangren Jr.'s, and I've been his colleague for many years. I'm really grateful to be here talking to you today about a subject we both care so deeply about, um, children and stories and the ways that stories shape our lives from, you know, infancy throughout. And so um, I'm just honored to be here. And you've been coming to uh, visit my classes for over 15 years. <laughs> and old. Yes. And... Um, most recently, you visited uh, in March of 2019, right before the university shut down due to the COVID-19 pam- pandemic. And so I'm just hoping today we can sort of capture for the Hutch Moot audience some of the amazing things you've had to say yeah. about children and <coughs> stories and what makes um, stories so incredibly meaningful for us. So... Um, I'd like to open with one of the questions uh, you first asked me about children's literature. So, yeah, you turn the tables as you often do. So back in 2006, I arrived at your office door back in Hughley Hall, um, and I knocked nervously because I wanted to ask you to visit um, my course on children's literature. And you immediately turned the tables and asked me about the course reading list. And do you remember what you asked? I don't okay. remember the question at Oh, all. you don't remember the question at all. You asked um, what fairy tales I'd be having students read. Mm-hmm. And so then I, mm-hmm. I listed some titles, Little Red Riding Hood. and But you said, no, no, no. Okay, but what versions of the fairy tales, right. what authors are you teaching? And in To Weave a World, in Swallowing a Golden Stone, you write really movingly about how, how as a young boy you identified with Snow White and how that story mm-hmm. spoke to your life, mm-hmm. right, so profoundly. So I guess my question for you today is why do you think fairy tales are so important for children? And why were you so fixated on the versions? Well, the versions, there are many, many versions that vulgarize mm-hmm. children's fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Disney has... No frightening things in the tales have mm-hmm. taken out what, mm-hmm. in fact, belong in the tales. Um, and then there are other authors mm-hmm. who have uh, softened the really terrible things in the tales. But the terrible things are necessary for children because they already um, suffer fears, mm-hmm. loneliness, senses of... Uh, of shyness um, and smallness. Um, It's just like Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, which is that it helps the children 
safely to move through these things that they feel unto um, a sense of an ordered life and their own importance because they can overcome the troubles of the world. Um, <laughs> they, the children, um, sometimes the children feel really lonely and that they're suffering traumas that nobody else knows, but that they know, um, and certainly their parents don't know even though their parents are the ones that read the stories to them until they can read them themselves. And once again, this is the manner by which uh, they come to see order in a messy earth, mm -hmm. by which they make sense of it. I once told my daughter, Talitha, uh, the story of creation mm -hmm. and uh, and had to include in that um, the God who created her out of clay. Um, and then finally, and this is how she would come through the tale, the God who leaned down and down to her face and instead of breathing into her nostrils, I said, and God kissed you. Um, so not just the fairy tales that uh, are already written and told through the generations, but also the tales that I made up for their sakes. Yeah, no, when you talk about um, children and their feelings and longings and experiences, it just makes me think of one of the lines from your work that I think is so important. And it surprised me at first when I read it. You talk about children being experts in difficulty. Yeah. Do you remember right. that line? Mm. Experts. That's what threw me off, was experts. Mm. Yeah. Um, but then, um, well, so when I met you, I had a three-and-a-half-year-old. And as I continued down the road of parenting, yeah. I just see you're right, mm -hmm. right, at a very young age. And, and part of your... Um, understanding or you're taking hold of that concept, as I understand it, comes from your own childhood and why you're Let me give you an example mm -hmm. of that expertise. And mm -hmm. once again, the parents don't know it. Mm -hmm. If one of the child's, oh, I don't know, grandparents or relatives dies, and then there's going to be a funeral, and the casket might even be open, <clears throat> and the children might see their beloved in the casket. So many parents think, well, we don't want to trouble them already with such things as death. And so they will not take the children to the funeral. On the other hand, children like mine are able to see the one who is dead and to understand something about death itself um, should be at the funeral, should look at their beloved ones in the casket. Because it takes adults a good long while to grieve, and sometimes never an end to it. But children grieve quickly, whether or not a parent says she's in heaven now. Um, but that's, that's their talent. It's natural to them to grieve quickly. Um, and 
and are over it uh, long before the parents are over it. They heal faster. Take them to the funeral. Let them see the one that they have loved in the casket. But yet you write in, um, i trying to remember the, the essay, is it in To Weave a World? It may be in another essay, but you write about another daughter whose experiences led you to create a story. And this was definitely, and so when you're talking about a funeral, I'm thinking about your oldest daughter, Mary. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. was it Ms. Lil who died? Yeah, so a really important member of your congregation. Uh, was it? Well, let's say it's Ms. Lil. Uh-huh. I actually think it's a different it's member. It's a different, okay, <laughs> sure. Well, we don't need to say that, but it was a member of your congregation. Yeah. And the children just loved her. And your daughter, was she maybe five or six? I'd say about six years old. Six, very young. And so what I'm thinking about when you talk about the importance of of children, you know, not being shielded Mm -hmm, from, mm -hmm. right? Where we don't just bow down to Mm -hmm. the romantic ideologies Mm of childhood innocence, but recognize children are human and part of the continuum of human experience. So um, you, you talk about, though, that the funeral itself and seeing the body wasn't enough. Right. Right? And wasn't enough. Wasn't enough, meaning you needed to create a story for them. Oh, and so I that's see. what I'm leading to. I'm yeah. wondering what role um, stories play in helping under helping children deal with All right, let me suffering. tell you yeah. that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I love that story. First of all, we actually visited this old skinny lady in the hospital. She was lying on her back with her eyes closed and there was the smell of cancer in the air. Um, Her hands were over one another on her breast Um, and the children, we were going to sing carols to her. The children came and stood around her bed and stood back. They were saying nothing. Their eyes were wide. Um, and I said, sing to her, sing away in the manger. And at first they started to sing and their voices were all very, very quiet. And they started with away in the manger. But the farther they went on singing that, Odessa Williams, Miss Odessa's eyes popped open. And she started looking around. Um, And the children, when she looked at them with grandmotherly eyes, sang louder and louder. Um, And then I said, Silent Night. Now there was a young girl, same age as my daughter Mary, who had a most beautiful voice. So, They all started with Silent Night, verses one, verses two. At verse three, Dee Dee Mm -hmm. raised her voice into the most beautiful desk cat. And she sang higher than all the others. Mm -hmm. Uh, They weren't surprised because they had sung with her before. By the way, Dee Dee Lawrence, when she was an adult, learned Mm -hmm. operatic songs. But when she started this high desk cat, Miss Odessa raised her arms and started to direct the girl 
who stood at the bottom of her bed. And the more she directed the girl, the higher Dee Dee's voice went. And it was as if it were a bird. And then it was flying out the hospital through the ceiling and making the stars ring. <coughs> um, and Miss Odessa <coughs> was kind to her and brought her down and down safely to the ground. And all the children were so impressed. And I said, okay, I was pastor. Okay, time to go. And they didn't move. Hmm. Because they expected Odessa to talk. Hmm. And she did. Hmm. She said, oh, you children, you my children. Always being my children. Um, and they nodded. They understood. And she said, you know how I can say such a maculous thing? And they shook their heads, but they knew she would tell them. She raised her hand and she said, because Jesus got us all in his hand and he never let one of us go. And when she said that with her hand still up, my daughter Mary reached across the bed and touched her hand. And I knew, I know that love can suddenly happen and that love can last forever. Came the day of her funeral. Um, I always welcome people into the church, those who are going to mourn. And near the end of that welcoming, here was my daughter Mary. So I led her into the church. And then she herself began to walk up the aisle toward the casket. And, uh, and she looked into the tomb. And she started to sob. Because when love lasts forever, pain lasts forever. She turned around. She didn't even cry. She stumped on back to the pew where the other choristers were sitting. And they all sat like this. They were angry. And I, I wanted them to find a place where to set their anger. In fact, I wanted to get them to say something like, I hate you, death. This would be a triumph. I then preached, I even remember the text that I preached on. Um, now there was no dark, now there was no uh, pain for those, for her who sat in darkness. Sermon meant nothing to the children, nothing at all. They still sat there angry. Uh, and so I told Mary a story. I made it up for her particularly. I said that north and north, even up to the North Pole of the world, there was a forest. And in that forest there lived <coughs> three plants. I said, there was bean plant, and there was marigold, and there was a thistle. 
Um, and Bean Plant thought she was important because she turned her little white flowers into beans and feed the people, mm -hmm. the trees, the squirrels, um, the birds. Mm -hmm. And Marigold thought that she was important because she was beautiful. Mm -hmm. She said, I am a knockout. <laughs> but Thistle, she talked to the sun. Oh, is it Lily? The third flower. Oh, you're right, you're right. But I know it's thistle. thistle. It's important thistle was, that it was yeah, Lily. It's, yep. Whew. She talked to the sun, mm -hmm. and she said, good. Mm. And the sun said, morning. And that's mm. how they talked to one another. Mm. And when the sun was high in the sky, she said, good. And the sun said, noon. And that's how they talked to one another. Mm -hmm. And in the evening, she said, good. And the sun said, evening. Mm -hmm. But she never wanted the sun to say goodbye because she loved the sun. And she wanted to hear the sun tell her that he loved her too. <clears throat> now, being planted marigold through parties. Oh, fantastic parties and all the animals and all the birds came and even the trees danced for these parties. But then there was Marigold. Over, I mean, there was Lily over on the side and crying. And they said to the party, don't mind her. She's always trouble for us. Well, they didn't know that the sun was dying mm. because the sun was getting up later and later in the morning <clears throat> and going to bed earlier and earlier in the evening. After the party was over, they said, Oh, Lily, why are you crying? And she said, Because the sun is dying. Oh, Lily, the sun doesn't die, nor the most part of the world. And she said, maybe so, maybe not. They said again, the sun doesn't die. And she said, maybe so, maybe not. Then suddenly, all the animals either went into their holes and the birds started flying south, and the trees were leaving, leaving their, no, no, leafing. Mm. The leaves of the trees were dying and falling to the ground, and they all said, before they flew away, the killer is coming. Mm. The killer is coming. Well, the two plants being planted, and Marigold said, it doesn't matter. I have all these beans to feed the people, Marigold said. It doesn't matter. I can be the sun when the sun is down. Lily said, but when the sun is down, he never would say to me that he loved me. Well, in fact, the killer came. It came through the air, 
and a kissed bean plant. And then she was left just shivering in the middle of the field because she had died. Mm. Important, important for the children. And then Marigold <coughs> put her head down on the ground and the killer came through the ground and kissed her. Mm. Lily kept saying, no, but the son said another word. Both times, the son said another word. The son said, again. The son said, again. And she said to the killer, I hate you. I hate you, killer. <clears throat> For killing my sisters. And then she waited because she knew what was coming for her. The killer kissed her too. And her leaves were withered and she died. I told this story to the children in church. I had said to the parents and the adults, now, I'm telling this to the children. We all can listen in, too. <laughs> when I asked the children, who is the killer? I promise you, they said, Winter. Hmm. They knew. And then I said to them, I'm going to take you to the northernmost part of the world. And I was thinking of Easter. And when we get there, you're going to see a lily plant with one drop in her cup. Do you know what that drop is? It's not a tear. It's a dew drop of life. And Lily heard the son say, I love you, Lily. One of the members in my congregation, whose name was Mary Ellen, of course, heard that story. And she tells my stories everywhere she hmm. goes. Hmm. Well, one day she got a telephone call from her sister, who was two states away. And her sister said, my daughter Rachel, she won't talk. She doesn't even eat. Well, what happened was she had a very good friend and they used to talk to each other over the telephone because her friend was in a wheelchair and he was a paraplegic. His mother drove that wheelchair outside and put it on the sidewalk that sloped down. One of the wheels, she hadn't locked it well, and one of the wheels started down, and that wheel got caught in a ditch, and the wheelchair went over. And again, what the children can understand, and its bar hit her friend's throat, and he died. And that's why Lily would not eat, would not even talk and could not sleep. Mm -hmm. Mary Ellen mm -hmm. told her the story of Lily. Mm -hmm. And then a little while later, Rachel said, tell me that story again. Mm -hmm. And she did. Mm 
And the third time she, she sold, mm-hmm. told the story to Rachel, her niece, Rachel started crying mm. because she had entered the story mm. and she was Lily. Mm. And once again, when Mary Ellen repeated the story, she went all the way to that uh, dewdrop mm. in Lily's cup. And that comforted Rachel mm-hmm. through the valley of the shadow of death mm-hmm. as children can. But on the way, it's almost like Hansel and Gretel mm. who discovered that they were stronger than the witch. Mm. And Rachel soon rose up mm. and was healed. Mm. Mm. Wow. You know, I love how I've heard, as many times as I've heard <coughs> your stories, there's something new always in mm. them. They sprout, right? So yeah. you, the, the dew do- drop <coughs> on the lily, I don't remember that detail exactly. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. You know, and you're just, our four-year-old right now is asking big questions about death. She knows she has older parents because she does. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she wants me to promise her I will never die. Ah. So I'm thinking Lily is a story for her. Do it. Mm -hmm. Because she will die. Yeah. Well, don't say that. Somebody she loves will die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't say that. Say this, You don't have to say you're going to die, kid. (laughs) Um, Well... Yeah, but children are experts in difficulty, right? I think speaking the truth, you, you've taught me a lot about that, just the importance of well, listening to children, number one. Yep. And I think it's so amazing that, well, I so appreciate in Swallowing the Golden Stone that you're one of the few... This with, is a book, by the yeah, way. Swallowing the book. Golden Stone is a book I wrote. <laughs> it's a great book. And in that book, you have a collection of essays... And about what it means to write stories for children and also what makes that work so meaningful. And one of the the essays is about the different stages into Mm. which children Mm. enter stories Mm. and the different and deepening levels of engagement. And my students always really love that account because one of the things that you say at the front end of that account is that art, you remind us as you remind us that art is an experience, and mm. so therefore, mm. stories mm. for children are incomplete on the page, right? They're there to be encountered, but you remind us of children's, uh, of, they're not just passive consumers, they're not just recipients, right? Yeah. They're, they're co-creators or sort of makers of meaning in terms of how they enter that story yes. and their willingness to enter the story. Yeah. You talk about and that. And the time comes. They're not yeah. willing right at first. It's right. just a pleasant diversion. And also you talk about the interesting sort of stories they'll choose or connect with. And part of how that comes through for me is in your wonderful account of being a little boy who identifies with Snow White. Right? I mean, that's yeah. not always expected. Yeah. And I'm thinking of my own daughter, Ingrid, when mm. she was four. She mm-hmm. loved Thistle. 
of all your books that you wrote. She was in love with Thistle. And I thought, well, this is too much (laughs) for this little one. Mm -hmm. You know, because, and I have to admit, I find it a little strange. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just the, the, uh, it was strange, especially for a child of her age to identify with it. Not that it's a magical story, but it seemed like something geared more for an eight or 10 year old, mainly because there's a, a flower eating potato or <laughs> a very angry potato named Pudge. <laughs> and he, one by one, he eats her family members and then we're down to Thistle and she's the only one <coughs> willing to go to a witch. And, and what I loved is that Ingrid's responses as a little four year old were so different from mine. And I'd ask her, well, why, what, what is your favorite part of the story? Or why do you love this story? And, and she will say, well, Pudge is hungry. That's why he eats the family. It wasn't she's oh, destroying yeah. the family. Well, he's hungry. He's got a need. And I'm, huh. And what I think she really loved about it was her identification with Thistle as sort of the littlest, mm. misunderstood one in the family. Because mm. then she was our youngest. And how she had spikes that maybe weren't beautiful but they protected her and then caused Pudge, I don't know, did he vomit up the family? How did that go? I don't remember that part. Oh, no. When he ate Thistle and her thorns were inside of Pudge, Mm -hmm. he uh, exploded. He exploded. And everybody had mashed potatoes. Kind of like the the wolf getting the hatchet to him in the Grimm's version of Mm -hmm. Little Red. That's fantastic. Wow. So just the role that children play in, in... engaging stories and making them come to life. But you also talk about how you were just naturally a storyteller from a young age. And I think of how, you know, kindergartners, four-year-olds, they just innately claim their human uh, (coughs) making as artists and storytellers, right? Yeah. And then yeah. kind of trickles away. Well, so in today's culture, so we don't need to bemoan necessarily unless you want to. Sort of what I know you have lots to say about how some of the contemporary writing for and about children misses the mark because it's too sanitized and it removes the difficulty. It removes the truth in many ways. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the parent says, you know, this isn't real. Mm. And the child says, but it's true. Mm. And the artist says that too, right? Yeah. 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 But it's true. Hmm. What are the biggest questions on your mind at this point, or the biggest revelations you've had lately about why we need stories, just the importance of stories to our... Well, I've been writing novels. Mm. And I don't have to, I doubt I even think about it. Hmm. Um, but while I'm writing them, I think in terms of an audience, an audience of one hmm. who can also be at my level of understanding. Hmm. I don't like it when one of my novels is taught in class and the teacher says, what does this mean? Huh. <laughs> because that's to make it an intellectual analysis. Hmm. Rather, I would have the teachers say, who are you in this story? Um, And once again, my reader 
doesn't necessarily have to uh, think about it. But if the novel works, the reader will be drawn into it and just like a child will experience what's going on and when it's, um, oh, let's say it's a detective story, the adult is the detective. And let's say is, uh, is searching out a serial killer or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's the reader who searches out mm -hmm. serial killers even though the reader is completely unaware that these killers exist in the world. Um, no doubt about it to their reader. But the reader, just like a child, is able ultimately to, um, to find the one who is a serial killer and uh, catch him or her, uh, accuse them, judge them, put them in jail, whatever. And that's mm -hmm. the satisfying part of the detective novel. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the next novel I write, which has some of the same characters, you're ready to read right again. Hmm. Okay. One of the um, questions that I've had my entire life, and I'm not sure... And I'm not expecting that you have the ultimate answer to oh, this. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> but let's try. Um, I've just been... Well, you know, someone who studies stories, and I do appreciate your point about how we should um, engage creative works. And I just want to add, before I get to my big question, I just mm -hmm. want to add to what you were saying about your novel and how it should speak to the reader and the kinds of questions we should ask about that engagement. I just, I remember you, I think it was in that first visit to your office, you said, do you ask students, how does a story speak to your life and how does your life speak to the story? Mm -hmm. And I, I find that a really important mm -hmm. and powerful question. But so Jesus, you know, as so you're a pastor, a teacher, a Christian, and I've just wondered my whole life, why is it that Jesus teaches through stories and not just storytelling of any sort, but often such cryptic stories, yeah. you know, parables. So I'm wondering what role sort of Jesus and sort of the, the nature of Jesus's storytelling has well, played I in your sense of stories. Well, I should say once again, they are not real, mm -hmm. but they're true. Hmm. <clears throat> Let's say, think of the prodigal son, for example. Um, that's not real. Hmm. And we shouldn't necessarily analyze it all the time. Right. You know, right. We're going to preach on it and so forth and we'll say what it means. <laughs> but uh, when Jesus tells that parable, the people who listen um, become the prodigal or they become the waiting father, mm -hmm. they're both. Mm -hmm. um, let me see, another parable that Jesus uh, told was so specific that the Pharisees who were listening, and this is again, this identification, mm -hmm. ground their teeth because mm -hmm. he was talking about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, how do you think, you know, especially when you talk about this kind of engagement that the reader has with 
you know, any kind of story. Why do you think God works through stories in this way when God's Son, the Word of God, could have chosen any mode of communication? Mm -hmm. And how has that been important maybe to your, your faith life? How has that been important to your creative work? I mean, you talk about in your covenants mm -hmm. how important mm -hmm. that is. And, and maybe this question is, is too abstract and we go to, no, can go to others, no, no. but. Well, one of the stories that we have is not told by Jesus, it's told about Jesus. Hmm. And uh, this is in the four gospels mm -hmm. with slightly different approaches to the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, when that is told, mm -hmm. when the gospel is told, when I preach the gospel, it becomes the story uh, upon which our faith is founded. Mm. And sometimes we scarcely know that that's what's happening. Mm. Our faith grows. Our trust in Jesus grows. And we are capable then of meeting our deaths without fear. Mm. I often think that the way a Christian meets death is maybe the profoundest witness uh, that they can give to other people. I don't mean that there is no pain, but I do mean that um, how we die. If we die like the martyrs with her eyes on heaven, that's a witness. In fact, martyr is a word that means witness. Hmm. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer several years ago and now my lungs are weak, which is why I breathe <laughs> oxygen all the time. But when I first was diagnosed, um, it was Christmas and all of our children mm -hmm. were home as well as our grandchildren. But when Than and I had heard on that same day that uh, I had cancer of the lungs. Wait, it was Christmas Day? Yep. Wow, I didn't know that. Maybe it was the day after Christmas, but wow, it was during yeah. that season. Hmm. Um, I said to them what is true and what surprised me, actually, that I was at peace with it. Hmm. I thought to myself, okay, here comes another adventure in my life. Um, now... One of our daughters-in-law wept. Mm -hmm. Our son Matthew put his head down on the table. And we all got up, and there he was. Suddenly, he got up, and he went into the bathroom, and he shut the door and uh, didn't come out. After a while, I knocked on his door, and I said, Matt, we have to take a walk. He lived on the farm then. So he did come out, put on his coat. It was snowing. Mm -hmm. And we walked down the uh, farm road. And I said to him, he was the only one who was not married. And I said, Matt, you have to watch over your mother when I'm not here. And that changed him because he had a duty to do. Um, and I was at peace. I am at peace 
I don't know when I'm going to die, but it's probably not too far away. Mm. But I'm at peace. This I know. I can't, I can't describe heaven. I don't know it. But this I do know, that when I have died, I will be with Jesus. And this is what I also think. Mm. He will say my name. He'll say Walter. And all will be well. Mm. Wow. I, I, as, you're, as you're telling this, I remember, so I was, well, do you remember that you were one of the retreat speakers? I think it was the first retreat that Christ Lutheran Church held. Could be. And mm-hmm. it was at a retreat center. And, and in your, I mean, we all knew we were going to hear a great Walter Wongren <laughs> Jr., I mean, it was a faith talk, right? I mean, you were a testimonial, so we knew we were going to hear something great. We didn't know we were going to hear that you had learned of your cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly powerful how you you told the story. And it was true. (coughs) I mean, what you told us Mm -hmm. was the truth. Mm -hmm. And I like what it was grounded in that gospel (coughs) truth, and that's where it came from. But you're also making me think, um, when you say God will, Jesus and will call your name, um, mm-hmm. it just all the way through the accounts of stories today and the stories you've told. It seems <coughs> to be part of they're they're definitely you know you talk about stories as being as having a kind of shaping influence and as yeah. being like a yeah. house that yeah. the the reader enters. Um, <clears throat> but it's also about naming the truth, it seems. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and making that, naming these truths and, and making them real. Um, but you talk about the importance of, I just want to read this, one of my favorite quotes from, again, Swallowing the Golden Stone, is... Um, you talk about how stories so fundamentally contribute to children's understandings of themselves and the world. And you say the story experience involves the whole of the child, her calculating mind, all her senses in the cauldron of her imagination, and thus is a shaping experience more powerful for forming a person's sense of truth and self than plain teaching can or than the rest of her daily life can. And mm-hmm. so I guess when I was talking about the, you know, seeing Miss Odessa's body in the casket as not being enough, meaning that the, the daily living, you know, can just, it's a wilderness, right? Yeah, and and it's too much. And so we need stories to help us tame. And then you also talk about stories as companioning. As what? As companioning. Oh, children yeah. through the thickets of all that's dark and difficult. Right. And maybe this is a good place to talk about what's wrong with current, maybe you could just let it all out, gripe about what's wrong with current storytelling for children. Mm. What is wrong with some of the trends now? Well, I should mm-hmm. say this, that there are stories today that work. Right. And there have been. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Beatrix Potter's mm-hmm. stories, or Eeyore, 
<laughs> or, uh, I love Eeyore. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, they exist. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Once upon a time when my brother Paul and I were very young mm-hmm. and our bedroom was an attic room, <clears throat> I told him stories that I, he and I both still remember. I won't tell them to you. <laughs> About the robber under the bed? Yeah, they were, yeah but yeah. I mean mm-hmm. other stories. Mm. And then, yes, we, I started to believe that there was a robber under the bed. Mm-hmm. And I believed that I had this one advantage. Hmm. As long as I was awake, the robber would not come mm. out. So... I had a hard time sleeping. I fought sleep mm-hmm. night after night. My mom always told us to go to bed at seven o'clock. And finally, when she said that one evening, I said, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't. And she must have heard the uh, trouble in my voice. She said, why not? And we went into the bathroom. And she sat on the side of the tub. I sat on the closed toilet lid. And I said, because there's a robber under our bed and he will hunt us. She said, oh, Wally, there's no robber. I'll show you. So we went up the stairs into our attic bedroom and we slept in a double bed and the blankets came down to the floor and she went up to it and she grabbed the hem of the blanket and threw it back and she said see and I looked under the bed and I saw dust bunnies and toy or two and no robber that night um, I knew she was wrong Uh, but Paul and I decided how to handle the robber and save us. When we went up the stairs, I remember specifically, we began to sing, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. (laughs) That'll work. And we did that because we knew that that hymn would (coughs) would turn the robber into a Christian. (laughs) <laughs> and wouldn't hurt us at all. Oh. And see, mm-hmm. it worked. It worked. Mm-hmm. So, with so way back in that first visit, just get back to what is. So you're right. There are stories that do work, and I love Winnie the Pooh. I think you're absolutely right. I think Winnie the Pooh captures the the sense of play. And how children's play is all about naming. And, oh, yeah. you know, they'll say, yeah. well, we're going, uh, what is it, one, ver- one chapter, uh, Christopher Robin, or it's Pooh who gets the word expedition wrong, and they start calling it an expedition. Yeah. And yeah. then they all start, oh, yes, it's an expedition. So they all start going along with that. And, yeah. and, you know, it's just like how kids will say, I'm the mom. No, I'm the mom. Okay, you're the mom. I'm the sister. And then in a minute later, when I'm playing with Greta, she's... Right naming these different roles it's how kids play and that to me is the plot of Winnie the Pooh and I love it or that fuels the plot is this linguistic kind of play and how kids incidentally yeah that word ex what was expedition no 
Oh, you want the real one? Yeah. Expedition? Expedition. Uh-huh. <laughs> when I write, at least not for the littlest children, mm-hmm. but when I write stories for children a little bit older, maybe mm-hmm. middle school, I will use big words like mm-hmm. that for a number of reasons. Because the context can teach them the meaning of that word. Mm-hmm. And also, because they will become better and better mm-hmm. readers themselves. Yeah. And not because they don't understand it yet, big words, mm-hmm. but they will. I'm writing right now uh, uh, a story. It's long enough to be in a book by itself, but a very thin book. Hmm. And I keep thinking, shall I use this word? And when I'm talking, for example, about fish, hmm. uh, which are either salted or dried in the sun um, or pickled, a word that fits it best is preserve. Mm-hmm. This is how they preserve it in order mm-hmm. to sell the fish. And I thought for a while, maybe I shouldn't use that word. Maybe mm-hmm. I should think of, I don't know, I use the word preserve mm-hmm. because um, they can understand it. The sharp ones will, but even those who are only just learning to read out mm-hmm. loud to themselves, they'll save that word. Mm-hmm. They'll come. The story will teach them what it means. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's great. That's true. Mm. Um, so I keep going back to that. You're saying all these positive things, and I keep. But one, let me just say, rather than asking the question again, what I remember you saying about uh, sort of some of the stories that are told today and what makes them problematic is that, as you put it back then, I remember the line, you said, it's all about, I'm okay, you're okay. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just such a watered down and Mm -hmm. I think worse, untrue Mm -hmm. account of, you know, what matters to us as Mm -hmm. human persons, right? Mm -hmm. I'm okay, you're okay Mm -hmm. is not much. And it certainly doesn't speak to the thickets of difficulty that we have to navigate and the great questions of human existence, right? And so you were saying, and I won't name corporations who make films for children, and it's not that all of those films are bad Mm -hmm. necessarily, right? But just the problem with, um, well, and you were talking specifically about how certain corporate authors who make film uh, adaptations of fairy tales. Yeah, we're, right. we're adapting fairy tales, right? Yeah. And so you were saying Hans Christian Andersen's account of uh, The Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. which I hadn't read at that point, and I read it after our meeting, was all about her wanting to get on land because she wanted a soul and yeah. she wanted to experience Christian salvation, right? Um, as opposed to you know, the film version where it's, the mm-hmm. recent film version where it's, you know, basically a shopping mall under the sea that she's, you know, raised in. And then she wants to uh, get the guy on land. Very different yeah. Yeah. message, right? Are there other things that, um, I mean, I know you were friends with Maurice Sendak and did you know Madeline Langle yes, too? Friends. Yes, yes. So um, you're all great writers who work to and Tony who, who Morris. take yeah who takes seriously 
uh, who respect children, right? And that was one yes. of the things you said. Well, not respect only, uh-huh. okay. but to write from being children and not from the mm. memory, which is more intellectual, hmm. but from huh. their, not only having been, but their presently being the children who are speaking to children. Huh. And how do you get in that place? How do they get into that? Or you, too. Yeah. Oh, it's the same thing. I I write for the children, um, remembering the events of when mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. and still am a child. Mm-hmm. I'm the... Uh, I'm the leader of other children, mm-hmm. but I'm the child who leads them. Mm. So is, is part of that sort of identity as child, I mean, I know we have child of God running through the Bible, and that's incredibly important, but I'm also thinking about as humans existing in the world, we never, as you said, know the true answer to what will heaven be like, right? Yeah, or right. what will it be like when Jesus calls my name? Mm-hmm. We have to, I mean, we're just always living in mystery and learning as we go. So in that sense. Yeah, mystery is a good word. It is a good word. Do you know the etymology of that word? You love words. What? Do you? No. Oh. Okay, we'll look it up after. (laughs) Mystic. Yeah. Um, Like a lot of things. Halo. Mm -hmm. What, What now? A halo around the saint's head indicates mystery, a halo around Jesus' head. In fact, Uh I often think that, for example, when we pray, Mm. um, I don't see a Jesus in my prayer, Mm. but I do know I'm praying to a mystery. Hmm. A mystery means Mm -hmm. I can't explain it. No, right. Mm -hmm. But But it's got deep presence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That's nice. Good. Well, thank you for this. It's been wonderful talking with you. You're welcome. Yeah, just a joy. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmood is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmood is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered.